following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we have been in the book of Ephesians for the bulk of this year, um, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, That's kind of our MO here at Sacred City. We tend to take books of the Bible and and slowly work our way through them. And, And as we have worked our way through the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Um, and what he is doing is essentially re-envisioning a new gospel humanity, a new kind of creature, a new kind of creature who acts and lives and believes a certain way that affects everything about them. This is a new humanity that has been swept up into the mercy and the grace of God, and in, in that occurrence, they have undergone significant and profound change from an inside-out level that their hearts, that our hearts, that when we've been captivated by the gospel has done such a, there's been a renovation of the soul. It's such a great work where we have gone from spiritual death into spiritual life, where the old, broken, um, messed up life that we had before is now replaced with a a new life in Christ. What has been broken is restored, right? And what Paul is envisioning through the book of Ephesians is this new humanity, which is humanity at its best. Humanity at its apex, its pinnacle. 
And this humanity has a specific kind of contour. Right? There's a silhouette here of the portrait that the Apostle Paul is painting for this new humanity or the bride of Christ. She is marked by love and purity, integrity and wisdom. She's marked by grace and honor and, and really the, the driving thing that the Apostle Paul is communicating, she is sanctified, she is beautiful. Now in chapter six, the book of Ephesians is, is reaching its climax here, okay? So it, it's working up. Paul has been building, laying building blocks, getting to this final thing, this final uh, message that he has here for us in, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Everything is leading up to this particular passage. What Paul shows us is, is yet another contour of the bride of Christ, another contour, another, another profile of the bride of Christ. And she's not this dainty or fragile little trophy wife that's just attached to Jesus' arm. Paul is showing us that the church is kind of a baddie, right? She, she's, she's armed She's locked and loaded. She's this warrior, this fighter, right? She's in a lot of ways like Joan of Arc. Like that's the kind of imagery that Paul invokes here in these 10 verses. This is the final emphasis that the church is a fighting community. Now we have to ask why? Why does Paul, is he working all the way up to this to get to this final emphasis of the church being a final, of a fighting community? And the reason for this being Paul's concluding thought is it's expressed to us back all the way back in the beginning of Ephesians in chapter 1, verses 17, where Paul is articulating that he has seen the apocalypse. Not, not the sense of the end of the world sort of thing, but apocalypse in the sense of revelation, that his eyes have been opened to the true reality which can only be found in the gospel that can only be found when God reveals this, that lifts the blinders from our eyes so that we can see. He says this in verse 17. He says that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation or a spirit of apocalypse in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul has said, and we've seen this, there's been a revelation. God is inviting us into true reality. And Paul sees this reality and he wants us to see exactly what he says, sees too, to see our current situation. Now I think as the church continues to be faithful to Jesus, one of the things that will set the church apart from the culture is our willingness and our commitment to live into reality, to live into way, the way that God sees and has made the world. See, the, the, the culture is slipping away into a uh, delusion, really, to unreality. It's a debased sense of reality, but God calls us into reality, and Paul shows us here is the reality of our current situation, namely that we are in a raging cosmic war. That right now, and you may not know this, you may not realize this, but even if you're in this room right now, you are in the midst of a raging cosmic war, where the forces of evil are opposed to the forces of good, the forces of darkness against the forces of light. And the church, the bride of Christ, is smack dab in the middle, and there is no Switzerland. 
There's no neutral ground. There's no place where you are out of the, the, the missiles and arrows that are flying through the air. There is no peacetime in this present age. And the stakes of this war are big time. High stakes. It's either fight and live or don't fight and be plundered by the enemy. And and in in this reality here, the fact that we are sitting in the midst of a cosmic war, I want to show you three directives that we receive from our commander and chief Jesus through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Three directives this morning that we are to hear and to act upon with urgency because the time calls for it. And when it comes to talking about combative language, right, when it comes to talking about spiritual warfare or even seeing this imagery that Paul uses of like battlefield, right, some of us tend to, get, to bristle at this a little bit. And that's not, that's not uncommon, I don't think, um, because, the, the, you know, we hear this and we say, well, I thought Jesus um, was an advocate of nonviolent enemy love, right? That, that was kind of the way of Jesus. He didn't come with a sword. He was the way of nonviolent enemy love. And yes, that is true. That the way of Jesus is nonviolent enemy love. In fact, the whole premise of the gospel sort of rests on this reality of loving our enemies because Romans 5 said that Jesus died for us while we were still sinning. While we were enemies hostile toward God, Christ died for us. He died for enemies. But as Christ died for us, Jesus was actually calling out the real enemy, right? The one who is actually opposed to Jesus, namely Satan. See, the real enemy is not flesh and blood. The real enemy is not your neighbor or or whoever has a different political ideology than you or whoever has a different worldview than you or isn't that person who snubbed your real enemy is not flesh and blood. See, that's why Paul says in verse um, 21 uh, of, of, well, actually, excuse me, verse 12, uh, it says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not people that we fight against, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, Paul is saying that right now there is a spiritual war that is raging, that is taking place in the heavenly realm, and that has spilled over here into this earthly realm. And the enemy ultimately being Satan, but Satan working through these cosmic forces of evil, the powers of darkness. Now, this is anything, there's any spiritual force that is opposed to God. So it could be Satan, all of the angels or the demons that fell with Satan in the rebellion, right? Those powerful forces. But what Paul is talking about when he talks about the powers, and we even saw this back in chapter one when he mentions the powers, it's not just that there are these um, agents who are working against God, but their influence is working in the, the, the earthly realm in such a way that sweeps people away from God. 
So working behind the authorities and the powers, governmental structures, institutions, the culture, all of these are under the influence of the, the, the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, which is influencing the masses. And Paul calls out the real enemy. It's, it's these powers of darknesses. The enemy is Satan, and his, his, his influence spreads out into these very human institutions. Now, the powers of evil that Paul identifies here are against everything that God is for. God is for truth, beauty, justice, righteousness, and these dark spiritual forces are against all of those things because they are anti-God. And because God is for humanity, it means that these evil powers are not only anti-God, but they're anti-human. They are, their mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, to wreak havoc, to pillage the people and leave. Basically, it's, a, it's an initiative of anti-creation to take the beauty that God has created from the dust and built up this beautiful world that we occupy, all the cosmos, and their mission is to undermine and to destroy and to pillage everything about it. These powers of evil are anti-life, anti-flourishing, anti-unity, anti-love, anti-wisdom, anti-beauty, anti-hope. The mission is to create this never-ending downward spiral of anti-creation. And when we come to see how the scriptures talk about the reality of dark forces, our modern minds tend to push back on this, right? In the vein of pseudo-logic and scientific reason, our culture rolls their eyes at this idea that there is a Satan, a devil. There is an evil force working against God and humanity. And they say, hey, this, this idea of Satan, you know, we, we've got to have a shared enemy. So we just created, there's a construct of this. It's sort of an archaic idea. Right? It's, it's just a superstition. It, it's sort of a boogeyman myth. But one of the greatest victories of the enemy is convincing the masses that he doesn't exist. In fact, John Mark Comer in, in this book, Live No Lies, he says that as long as we deny the reality of demonic evil, we will inevitably demonize people. So if we cannot realize that there is a dark spiritual force working against us, that is the true enemy, what we're going to do is misplace our war and start waging war on our neighbors, on people that disagree with us, people that have hurt us. That is going to be our natural tendency unless we can see with the eyes of revelation like Paul sees that our battle is not against flesh and blood. See, without realizing the reality of Satan, we will wage war on the wrong enemy. Now, when you see, like Satan's, just to give Satan a little bit of credit here, which I don't want to do much at all, um, he's kind of good at what he does. He's good at deceiving people. He's good at um, baking people into a worldview of lies. He's good at 
at swiping away the weak, preying on the vulnerable. He's, he's pretty good at that. And in fact, he's, he's had a lot of success throughout human history. And when we see the success of Satan, or, or at least temporary success, the idea that we are to go up against him and the dark spiritual forces might be a daunting idea. Right, for us to be positioned to set ourselves against this, this supremely evil, invisible force that we can't really see, that we don't actually, we, we can't pin it on, okay, that, that right there, that was the devil. Like, there's some, some vagueness about how we actually combat the devil. There's a sense where it's a very daunting idea. In fact, he has left such a mark on our culture, on, on humanity, that you start to wonder, is like, can, can we even... Can we even find success in this? Can we actually, this fighting, will it actually accomplish anything? And I think that we would be naive not to be a little bit intimidated by the idea of spiritual warfare, of stepping into the arena. Now, just to give you a little window into my life, um, believe it or not, I had a short-lived junior high wrestling career which if you saw me in junior high would be a lot more surprised. I didn't really grow until I got into college. Uh, in junior high, I was very much a weakling. But I wanted to wrestle. I wanted to be there. Um, and I was not particularly good at wrestling. So that's the other part of that. Not strong, not physical, not good at wrestling. Um, but in junior high, I remember, actually multiple occasions, I remember going up against who would, a guy that would one day become a state champion. Looking at this dude in my weight class, and, and our bodies look very different, okay? Uh, he's strong. He looks powerful. Um, he had a lot of skill. He had this reputation of being dominant. And as I step foot on the mat, I see this guy, and there's this instant trembling that takes place. It's like, this is not going to go well for me. And, and, and I felt that, and I look at my coach's face, and I know by the look on his face, he's like, okay, let's just get through this. Hopefully you don't get hurt. And as I stepped on that mat, I just knew that I was doomed. There was a sense of hopelessness entering into that battle. Now, Paul uses um, wrestling language. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The sense of, of this combat is like a close quarters thing. So like when we're going up, it's, it's almost like we're sparring, right? It's this close quarters thing. It's not like, you know, we're launching missiles from, from across the globe uh, against the enemy. It's this close quarters fight that's happening. And I go into that match knowing that I'm doing, I'm just outmatched. Now, a lot of people feel that way when it comes to spiritual warfare. That we feel outmatched, that we feel like we're going, we're, we're going to lose before the thing even starts, before we step into the arena. We have this sense of, of timidity, that we're afraid, that, that we just feel like we are destined to fail. And you will. If, if, you try to fight in your own power. If you try to fight on your own initiative, there is no chance of success for you in going up against the enemy. One of the trends that's happening in our culture is this rise of secular humanism. It's the idea that, that if we just kind of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, if we do the right things and, and make more conscious decisions and save the world and think about these people and those people and just to do all of the good things, that there, there can be this enough momentum uh, across humanity that we can triumph over the things that oppress us, the things that, that make our existence here on earth so challenging. But no human, humanitarian effort 
will ever, ever, ever be able to overcome evil. The power of evil is way too strong that in ourselves we are outmatched. Now this is why Paul gives us the first directive, the first thing, the first command that we receive from our Lord Jesus through the mouthpiece of the Apostle Paul is this. He says, be strong in the Lord. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul debunks this myth that you could just pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and just sock the devil on the chin. You can't. But you can be strong in the Lord. You can be strong in the power of his might. And so Christians, we don't fight from a place, place of our own strength. Rather, we fight from a place of weaknesses. We have to confess our dependency upon the strength of someone other than ourselves to strengthen us to step into this cosmic fight. In fact, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, it's in our weakness that Jesus' power is made perfect. That when we admit that we are in desperate need of an outside source of power, it's then when Jesus can move through us in power. And so we stand in the strength of Jesus. We draw from his power, from, from his might. But the question is, is Jesus powerful enough? Can, can Jesus put it to Satan? Does he, is there a fighting chance there, right? Because one of the things that, that we want... One thing about society, sort of a dualistic idea about Jesus or good and evil, Jesus and the devil, good and evil, is that they're equal counterparts, right? For every good attribute that Jesus has, Satan has a, an equal and wicked complementary attribute, right? It's this yin and yang thing. That's dualism. But that's not at all the case, at least not when you read the scriptures. Because what Paul tells us, if you go all the way back to chapter one, you go to chapter three, Paul is telling us that Jesus has a power that cannot be matched. While there are rivals to Jesus, there is no real threat to him. Check this out. He talks about what kind of power Jesus has back in Ephesians chapter one. And if you go back to, again to verse 17, I think we got this for the screen. He says, I don't, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the states, in, of the saints, here it is, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen to this, far above, not just a little bit above, but far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head of all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the kind of power that Jesus has. It is unmatched. 
Satan has no chance against Jesus. And Paul prays that every Christian, not just like the spiritual elite Christians, but that every Christians, every single Christian would be filled with the power of Jesus. He prays this in chapter 3, uh, verse 14. It says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Christian, the Lord Jesus has a power that you have access to. And we are to pray for it, ask for it, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul says, listen, Jesus has absolute power. And Jesus is giving or loaning or, or stu- giving us his power to steward on his behalf. And what we see here is that, that when we see the power of Jesus, when we see the accessibility of the power of Jesus, Jesus fortifies our hearts with his strength. That he causes us to be strong, not in ourselves, but in his power, in his strength. Therefore, when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, we didn't receive a spirit of, of timidness. We didn't receive this power, a spirit of fear. We're not cowards, but we, are, we have a spirit of power because it comes from Jesus. And it's because of this, Christians can actually do what God commands us to do. See, look at this. If you look at verse 10 of chapter 6 and say, okay, be strong and be, you know, be, strong and be mighty, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, I can't really do that. I don't know. But if you see that Christ has everything that you need and that God will provide everything that he commands us to do, we can actually be strong in the Lord. We can actually find strength in the power of his might. And, and this, this command that we see in verse 10 is echoing some of the Old Testament here, especially Joshua chapter one, verse nine, right? Let me flip there for you for a second, just so you can hear. He says to Joshua, he's, he's about to go into the promise, and be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So again, God is the reason why God is calling him to courage, calling him to take heart, calling him to stand and be mighty is not because Joshua is powerful in himself, because God is with him. And when we see this, when we, when we see uh, what Paul says here um, in chapter 3, um, Joshua 1.9 gives a, a new dimension here in the gospel. It's not just that God is with us, It's that God is in us, that you would be strengthened in your inner being, that the the, the gospel, the word of Christ, the power of Christ would work from the inside out. Your heart would be strengthened because God is in you. Therefore, as Christians, we are never without the strength that we need to fight. We have everything that we need in Christ. Because we are equipped in that sense, It's with the power of Jesus we can suit up. 
right? In the words of Barney Stinson, suit up. Never mind. I thought people would like that, but no. Okay. We suit up. Because we can stand in the power and the might of Jesus himself, we can put on the whole armor of God. That's what Paul says in verse 13. Therefore, right, again, going back to the reality that one, that you are in the midst of a spiritual warfare in the, in the spiritual battle, and two, that you have the power and the might of Jesus, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil, withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. That's the second command, the second directive that the Apostle Paul gives the church. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, I don't have time to dig into this um, in its entirety this week. We're going to spend time next week digging into the armor of God. What does it mean? What does it look like? How do we put it on again? But we're just going to breeze through it real quick. But when Paul says be equipped or put on, put on, he's invoking a lot of language that he's used before. He said put off the old self, put on the new self. He's echoing chapter 4 when he says, be equipped. God's given the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Again, he's saying, be equipped, put on the armor of God. And now it's this, verse 14, he tells us what kind of armor that looks like. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now again, when Paul tells us the, the armor of God, what he's doing, he's articulating one more time that we are not fighting a physical battle. There are not mortars flying through the air. There's no aerial attack. There's no need to get out your AK-47s. It's not a physical attack that is most pressing to us as Christians. It's a spiritual battle. And without the proper armor, you will be vulnerable to the enemy's attack. Again, going back to, to verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's a spiritual attack. And what the armor that, that Paul lists out here indicates, it coincides with the kind of schemes the enemy uses, the manner in which he attacks. Now, we're about to go through this here, and it might be, as we talk about spiritual warfare, depending on your background, I, I came from more of a conservative um, background where spiritual warfare wasn't necessarily something that we talked about. Maybe you came from a more of a charismatic background where every, every week was like a deliverance thing. We got cast out demons and all that stuff. It just kind of depends on your background. But, but when we talk about um, fighting against the schemes of the devil, this might be less supernatural than what you think. This might be less sensationalized or glorified in the sense of this real spiritual battle than what you might initially or, or presume. Because what Paul is talking about is not necessarily this hand-to-hand -hand demon combat. There is not a devil behind every bush. It's not this hand-to-hand -hand demon combat, at least not primarily, all right? There are times when Jesus is casting out demons, there are times where that, that might actually be a reality, where a demon needs to be cast out, all right? But 
the majority of our fight is ordinary. Because the way the enemy fights is this subtle, sometimes even undetectable strategy and scheme, trying to get us to fail, to lose. And, and when you see that the goal for Satan isn't just to, the goal of Satan is not to have a church of Satan worshipers. He's a glory thief. His goal is to pull people away from giving God the glory that he is due. And so even that, if he could just pull us away from that, I mean, it might be, it might, might be into um, uh, materialism, it might be into sexuality, it might be, in, I mean, you can go through a list of different things your political agenda. It could be any of those things that if you give more attention to that thing than you do God, Satan has won. His schemes have been successful. And so Paul says, hey, I'm gonna show you how Satan fights. And first thing that's, that, that Paul says that you need to fight against Satan is the belt of truth. Why? Because Satan is the father of lies. Every lie proceeds from his lips. And he lies in order to, uh, to, to be destructive, in order to humiliate, and in order to enslave people in unreality. See, this is why you need the belt of truth. Right? In Old Testament prophecies and in Old Testament references, which all of the, the armor of God is referencing, like passages in Isaiah, the reason why you need a, a, the belt of truth is to gird your loins, something to keep you, keep your pants up so you don't get humiliated. You don't want to get caught with your pants at your ankles. And so you need the belt of truth, something to uphold you and keep you secure. He says that Satan uses sensuality and impurity to play on our sinful and misdirected desires. That's the reason why you need the breastplate of righteousness. So that, that you know, you can hold to, close to your chest, that which is good and right and beautiful and true. Paul says that Satan is an, an agent of disorder and chaos. And he, he leverages tribalism and hate so people are opposed to each other. In fact, that was one of the major things that Paul addressed earlier in the book of Ephesians, this divide between Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, we need shoes quickened by the reconciling gospel of grace to bring peace to one another. He says you need the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, which protects us from cynicism. And when we receive the accusations from the accuser saying that you're not good enough, you're not actually saved, you, you're not, you, there's no way that you can belong to God. See, the the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation protects us from those attacks. And, and he, he ends it with the sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God, so that we would be able to discern all things, all ideologies, take every thought captive to the mind of Christ. Everything, all of this armor that Paul says, this is what you gotta put on, corresponds to the way that which the enemy is prone to to attack us. Now, there might be other ways that, that goes beyond, but this is primarily the ways that the enemy is going to get us. 
And when we have the armor of God, when we stand in the strength of his power of his might, Isaiah 53 prophetically says that no weapon forms, formed against us will prosper. See, as we put on the armor of God, as we stand in the power of God, here's the third directive. We fight. We keep the line. Third directive is that we fight back. We resist the devil. We stand against it. If you go back to, I think it's Ephesians chapter four, maybe five, yep, five, where he talks about um, exposing the works of darkness. Paul says in verse 13, do all, do all to stand firm. Do not give up ground. Stand ready to fight. Now, how, how do we fight? I know when we're talking physical fight, we have an idea how to do that, right? You just swing hard as you can. When you're fighting spiritually, there's a different approach. Three things that Paul tells us, three practical ways that we can fight. One, he says in verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer, and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Paul says you, you have to, Christian, you have to stay on guard. You have to be alert. Why? Because Satan loves to take cheap shots. I don't know if you've got any boxing fans out there, but, but maybe you can call to mind that, that Floyd Mayweather and, and Ortiz fight, right? The, the referee kind of breaks him up. They're in the midst of a scuffle, and then pop, he socks him. It's like, a, it's like cold cock. It's like a cheap shot, maybe the, the biggest cheap shot of all boxing. That's how Satan likes to fight, when your hands are down at your waist, when you're least suspecting it. It's like the second you let your guard down, you open yourself up to an attack, and that might mean staying up too late with a screen on. That might mean drinking too much or, or letting um, substances compromise your conscience and your integrity. That might mean um, that you, you're keeping bad company that will sweep you into a way of licentiousness. So you have to be on guard. It only takes one bad decision. One bad decision to shipwreck your life. That's all it takes. One moment of vulnerability. One moment of, of, of a, a loss of your mind. And that can undo decades of good work. So Paul says, listen, leave no room for the devil to sneak in. Be on guard. Be alert. Keep alert. And, and to do it diligently. Right? There, there's this perseverance that takes place, right? Because to keep alert, and to keep alert at all times, that can be kind of exhausting, which goes back to the first directive. Be strong in the power of his might. Now, the second thing Paul tells us to do, the second way that we fight spiritually is to pray. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to, the keep, to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And then Paul asks, hey, will you pray for me too? Paul says the way that we fight is through prayer. Perhaps our strongest spiritual weapon. Now when Paul says pray for supplications, bring the supplications, what he's saying is you can pray for help. Pray that the Spirit of God would empower you, that would give you exactly what you need in your emptiness. 
See, God delights in our request for help. When, when we acknowledge our desperate need for him and, and cry out to God, he is eager to supply what we need. And, and interestingly, prayer isn't the only way that we ask for God it's, uh, to, to supply our needs. It's the way in which God actually supplies our need. It's a special kind of prayer. It's sort of a, a, a prayer that communes with Jesus, right? The way that you absorb the, the might and the power of Jesus is by communing with him, by being with him. Now, this kind of prayer, it's so easy to go to God with prayers of supplication, say, hey, God, I really need this for today, today, today. Please give me what I need. But to do this other kind of prayer where you're communing with Jesus, it requires it requires discipline. It requires some intentionality. But this is what training looks like for the spiritual fight that we're fighting. Right? A, a soldier doesn't just get sent to the front lines. They've got to go to basic training. They've got to be trained. And prayer is the place where God gives us the strength, equips us, gives us the might that we need. This kind of communing prayer is how we find our sustenance to fight that gives us the ability to persevere. And the third way that we fight is to proclaim. Verse 19. It says, pray for me um, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. A big piece of spiritual warfare is boldly proclaiming the good news. There's a sense of a necessity of us being able to preach the good news to ourselves as disciples of Jesus of hearing, being refreshed in the good news, but also making the announcement to the world. Now, what is this good news that Paul proclaims? What is the, the, the mystery of the gospel? It's this, that Jesus has already won. The fight is over in, in the most true of senses. The fight is over. We don't fight as Christians with our fingers crossed and saying, man, I really, I really hope this shakes out in our favor. I really hope this works out. I really hope that that... that dart that I threw back, really stuck. We don't fight from a place of uncertainty. We fight knowing that the victory is certain in Christ Jesus. That Paul says in Romans that we are more than conquerors in Christ. And at the cross, Jesus, he delivers us from the domain of darkness. He, he brings us out from underneath the tyranny of Satan, under this cursed world that we occupy. And at the cross, it looks like weakness where Jesus is being humiliated. It looks like the devil's winning. Right? The Son of God is murdered by the people he came to save. It looked like weakness. But it's really the power of God. And that power is demonstrated in the resurrection where God raises him from the dead. The best that Satan has to kind of go after Jesus, to, to, to sabotage his cause of renovating the cosmos fails because God's power is so strong. And Jesus in the resurrection power is seated at the right hand of God above all things, right? Go back to, again to Ephesians 1. There's nothing above him. 
He seats, is seated and powered, and we are seated with him in the heavenlies. See, this is the kind of cosmic perspective that we have to have if we are going to be faithful soldiers to Jesus, to step into the battle. We fight from a place of victory. Well, if that's the case, why, why do we still have to fight? What's the deal here? Well, here's a helpful illustration that you probably, maybe you've heard it before. But the resurrection, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that was D-Day. Right, that was the day of the last meaningful battle. The day in the World War II where the b- battle, basically, the war was over. Victory had been secured. See, Jesus gave the definitive ble- death blow to the devil. Yet, there is this lingering that happens. See, there was almost a year passed between D-Day and V-Day when the war was actually over, over. Where, where those last little holdouts were still defending their territory, trying to make advances, but it was all futile. See, V-Day is on its way. Jesus will come again with the new heavens and the new earth. He will bring the kingdom of heaven in its fullness. And right now we are positioned in the already and not yet. And that's really what the, the season of Advent is about. That's where we are positioned in this moment of time. Jesus has already come. He's already fought the war. He's already defeated the enemy. Yet... The kingdom of heaven is not yet here in its fullness. It's here in part. It's growing. But there's a day when it's coming, the second advent, once and for all, where Jesus will return and bring the kingdom of heaven with him in all of its glory, and the war will cease because the enemy will be expelled. Christians fight from a place of victory. There's no question. There's no question. You see, the, one of the reasons why we have such confidence is because in the Old Testament, all of the prophecies of the Messiah have been fil- fulfilled in Christ. And so when we know that, we look forward to, to the book of Revelation, and when the Apostle John is telling us of what's to be one day, we can have confidence and hope and know for certain that God accomplishes all that he promises. And our fight today proves that we believe in the incarnation that happened 2,000 years ago and expresses our hope and trust and confidence that Jesus will come again. That the new day is coming where we can, we can take our, our weapons and beat them into gardening tools because there's no fight anymore. Go from warriors to gardeners in the new heavens and new earth. But until that day, until Jesus comes, our duty as Christians is to be a faithful soldier to Jesus, to push back darkness, right? To to proclaim the good news, to, to pray, to commune with him, to be empowered by him, and to keep guard and so we fight tirelessly until Jesus comes. We stand against the enemy knowing that Jesus, who is the light of the world, will come again. And his light will shine so brightly that there will be no need for the sun. Darkness will be expelled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are, in fact, a mighty and powerful God, that you have no real rival, that when we are in allegiance to you, Jesus, um, we have a certain future. 
We thank you that you have worked powerfully on our behalf at the cross. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we, we are remembering the sacrifice that you made for us to, to purchase us out, to deliver us from the domain of darkness, to take us out from the grip of Satan and to bring us into the kingdom of light, that you would adopt us as your own children, that you would take us from enemies to, to, to be beloved sons and daughters. And it was your blood, your broken body that paid the price, that, that transferred us from one kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We remember that sacrifice that you have made, but this is also a meal that points forward to the future. It is a foretaste of the banquet that is to come in the new heavens and new earth when darkness and evil and anything that is opposed to you, God, will be eradicated once and for all. And because of your grace, because of your mercy, we get to be on the winning side. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking action when we did not deserve it. We did nothing to deserve your favor, yet you give it to us. And so with, with our mind in the past uh, of the sacrifice you made and our, and our eyes set on the future of your, your coming again and what we have to look forward to, God, would this meal strengthen us to fight in the day-to-day -day life? Let us have our eyes opened. The, the revelation, the, the apocalypse would come before us that we would see the true reality in which we stand and not demonize our enemies or flesh and blood or our neighbors, God, but to see that there are real dark forces. And with your help, with your power, help us to fight for the sake of our own sanctification and for the sake of our city to push back darkness that the light of Christ would shine. In Jesus' mighty name we pray.